Friends, let us turn now to the word of God for our praise, for our worship, for our instruction in righteousness. We turn to the book of Revelation and the 13th chapter. The book of Revelation, chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear his precious word, his holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. The Lord giving us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive his word by faith. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast. They worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? There was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he goeth, doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. He causeth all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, that him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Amen. So reads God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. May the Lord grant his help, his spirit, to understand his word and to apply it to our needful hearts. Let us come before the Lord together in prayer. Amen. Oh dear. Congregation, dear friends, I ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to the book of Revelation and the 13th chapter. 
We arrive in our studies now in this 13th chapter of the book of Revelation as we continue to make our way through this book that is meant to reveal. It's all given in the title of the book. It is the perusing, it is the unveiling of the things that should shortly come to pass. And I trust that you have been seeing as we've been going through the book, and also as I've given you sheets showing how the book is structured into seven cycles, seven cycles showing things that take place during this present gospel age from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven to his final and second coming, that great final and last epoch. Seven cycles. It's like, I suppose, taking a journey from here to your house and taking pictures of all the lamps, posts, one journey, and then the next journey, taking pictures of all, perhaps, something else. In other words, you're getting the same journey, but you're seeing it from different angles. You're seeing different things. It's viewing things up until the final coming of Christ. Different things, but the same journey. These things are what we call synchronous. As we've gone through the various cycles, remember the first cycle had to do with the seven lampstands. There were seven literal churches, and they're all, we could say, different, but they're all representative of Churches down through the gospel age. Churches will be similar to the church at Ephesus at one time, or the church at Smyrna, or Thyatira, or Sardis, and so on. And uh, seven is a number that features very much, as we've seen in the book of Revelation. Uh, The number, the symbol seven, symbolizes completeness. It also symbolizes perfection. One day the church will be perfect, and we thank the Lord for that. Not only the complete and the entire church and body of Christ, but one day that church will be perfect. We see it also in the Old Testament candle. Remember the church is the candlestick, but in the Old Testament the candlestick was one, but it had seven pipes, as it were, coming out. So seven cycles, the lampstand, And then we saw, indeed, the seals. The seals are the decrees that are to happen, and various things happen in the world. These things are what we call symbolic parallelism. Synchronous, sync, meaning together. Chronos, meaning time. Each cycle that we've seen ending with the saints glorified in heaven. That's what we see at the end of each cycle. Didn't we see that at the close of chapter 11? And then chapter 12 began a new cycle, didn't it? Remember chapter 12, we said, as you just think of those sheets that I gave you, we're seeing things now in chapter 12 in the sort of unseen world. Chapter 12 began really a new cycle, and we're viewing things here in this fourth cycle Things shown in the spiritual realm, the unseen world. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6. He said, finally, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He said, for we wrestled not against flesh and blood, but against powers principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan is operating through the sons of disobedience. That's what we're told in Ephesians 2. Uh, He is the prince of the power of the air. He is also styled as the god of this world, who has blinded the minds of them who believe not. Paul, when he wrote to, or rather visited the elders at Miletus, the elders of Ephesus, they came down to Miletus. He told them, he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers 
to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So there will be evil, even sadly, amongst professing believers. Even in his day, John said, even now is the last time, and many antichrists have gone out already in the world. So remember, chapter 12, we, as we came to chapter 12, we were introduced, weren't we, first of all, to the great arch enemy of the church. And his style there is the dragon, as that serpent of old. Remember, we have the dragon, just looking back there at chapter 12, the serpent of old. And then we have the woman. Of course, the woman, we're told, is the church uh, who brought forth the man-child. Three characters there, the dragon, the woman, and the man-child. Who is the man-child? Well, we're told is the long-promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when the woman was about to bring him forth, of course, Christ came from that seed. Remember, promised to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman shall bring forth the man-child, the one who would crush Satan's head finally, as soon as the Messiah was to be born. Well, the dragon was ready to pounce and to devour the man-child. As soon as he came into the world, we know this as we thought last time with, indeed, Herod, how so many were slain and put to death because he was after, indeed, the man-child. But suddenly his life, at the end of his short life of 33 years in earning a complete righteousness for his people, suddenly he was taken up to heaven. Just when the devil thought he had won, he was taken up, we're told in chapter 12, the man-child who was to rule all nations. That's what people thought here on earth with a rod of iron. Of course, he has a kingdom, and one day he will dash the nations. But suddenly, he was taken up to his throne, caught up unto God, end of verse 5 of chapter 12, and unto his throne. And that's where he is now. And the woman, remember, was... Persecuted, she fled to the wilderness, chapter 12, verse 6. For how long? For 42 months. For 203 score days. It's the same, isn't it? 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. We've seen it time and time again. The Holy Spirit is teaching us and saying the same thing that the three and a half years, the 42 months, we've seen it so many times, haven't we? It means the same thing. It's just confirming to us how long is the gospel age. Of course, it's all symbolic. And we'll see that once again. 42 months. How long does the beast persecute the church, the true saints? We'll see it here. 42 months again. It's the gospel age. Now, again, the scene is the same. As we come to chapter 12, remember these are the unseen forces of darkness in the world and how Satan is operative even in this world. And uh, we're introduced here uh, to two beasts in this chapter. They're not Satan, as we'll see, but they're his agents. And this is so important that we see it with our own eyes in the Bible. And you don't just take my word for it. It's important just to look and see together. Verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. You see, the dragon, we know from chapter 12, is Satan, that old serpent of old. We, we have not forgotten that. I trust that from chapter 12. But we notice verse 3, And I saw one of his heads 
that's the beast, as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. But apparently he survives this and revives again. And they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast. So they not only worship the dragon, but they worship the beast, as we'll see, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given him unto him to continue, notice, 40 and two months. So it's the same period, isn't it? The gospel age. We've seen it in many chapters so far in the book of Revelation. So it ought to be unmistakable to us that this, again, is the gospel age in which the true saints, the true children of God are persecuted. Well, who and what are these beasts? Well, with the Lord's help, a little bit of study tonight, I trust that we will uh, come to an understanding. It's uh, not difficult. It's not mysterious. Many people have very fanciful schemes in coming to conclusion as to who these beasts are. But I trust that by the word of God, not by the preacher, but by the word of God, we'll be able to interpret these things from the word of God. We must follow, of course, all the symbols that are given us in Scripture. So we notice verse 1, And I stood, and here, by the way, is the first beast described, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now again, this is not Satan, and I say this because, remember, the old dragon was described as one having ten horns and uh, seven heads and seven crowns. Horns represent power, don't they? Ten, it's that symbolic number of something given by God. Same numbers, seven, he has the appearance of power and success. Indeed, he is a ferocious one. But uh, again, horns, they, we've said it time and time again, they represent power. Of course, even the Lord is described as the horn or the power of our salvation. We're saved by Jesus Christ. But crowns, they represent victory. So here this beast has apparent victory. But it's not really the case. It's apparent, just like Satan has, we saw earlier in the previous seven crowns, seven heads. So what is this beast? Who is he? Well, let's look at the verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, or authority, and great authority. So who is this beast? Well, as I said, we ought to get our answers always from Scripture. So if you turn to the book of Daniel and the chapter 7, you'll notice and as you're turning there, let me say, Christian Jews, as well as Gentile Christians, who knew their Bibles at this time, would have no difficulty in understanding this. If you turn to Daniel 7, and I want you to notice that these creatures, who are bear-like and lion-like and leopard-like, coming out of the sea as well, I want you to notice that, are pictured here in Daniel 7. And later on you'll see we're given the meaning of what these are. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. 
And the man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, second like unto a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said, Thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, a dreadful and terrible and strong and exceedingly, and had a great iron teeth, and it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue. So you can read on. So you've got these beasts, these four beasts. Now what's the meaning of them? When you come down to the verse 17 of Daniel 7, it says there, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. So they're not actual creatures that come out of the Mediterranean Sea, or something bizarre like that, but they symbolize earthly powers. And these kings, of course, are appointed by men. It's the world, people of the world, rulers. We must understand these symbols, says Daniel, to mean people, especially powers. But who appoints those powers? Of course, men may choose their leaders, but all are ordained of God, aren't they? They're all by God's power and by God's will. The powers that be, Romans 13, are ordained of God. But men, of course, choose the kind of leader and the powers that they want. And they support those forces. So you notice here, and you notice that these beasts come out of the sea. Daniel 7 verse 2. And behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now the sea, what does the sea represent? Well, we're told many times in the scripture that the sea represents the nations, the people. In uh, Isaiah 57 verse 2, 20, sorry. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So these kings, these rulers these authorities, and really we could say this is the world rising up. It's the sea. Men come up out, don't they? These leaders come up out of the sea, out of people. We know from Revelation chapter 1 that the many waters are the people, the kindreds of the earth. And the wicked are like the troubled sea, as Isaiah says, that can have no rest. Now here's the thing. Many times in Scripture, the sea is described or used to describe lost men. Why? Because they can get no rest. And here the picture is Satan, who has blinded the minds of men and monarchs and leaders. Satan, what does he do? He stirs the sea of men, and men rise up, and kingdoms rise up to oppose the true church of God. So this is, we could say, earthly People's persecution, political persecution, the whole world. The world, this is man, we could say. Not just leaders, but all men rising up in, out of the sea, out of the abyss. And it will continue how long? We're told, 42 months, throughout the gospel age. While this world exists, the church will be persecuted by the world. By and large, will it not? Has it not been the case? Now you notice, verse 4, this is very solemn. These people, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. You see, Satan is behind all of this. He gives power to man. Ultimately, he stirs up. But there's another beast, actually, that gives power who is subservient to this first beast that comes out of the sea. And uh, we will see that this evening. But I want you to notice verse 4 very carefully. They worship him, Satan, or the dragon, and they worship the beast. The beast represents man. We've seen it. Men and men's kingdoms, how people glory, don't they? 
And people gloried in the Roman Empire and the Napoleon's Empire and all the empires. Man glories in man, doesn't he? Isn't that true? Man does glory in himself. He glories in his own strength. Well, Satan, he gives power to men and to kingdoms, and they worship the dragon, verse 4, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast. Isn't that interesting? You see that? So Satan is both worshipped, but unwittingly. Let me say this. Unwittingly, Satan is worshipped. Because, think of it, way back in the Garden of Eden, who was it that said to Eve, if you take this, take this forbidden fruit, God doesn't want you to have, you'll be like God. It was, she thought, liberating. Freedom. And what does Satan say? He continues to say the same thing. He's the liar from the beginning. Satan says, in effect, you are gods. You are your own man. You don't need to answer to God. And uh, I suppose, in a way, the world doesn't know it, but it actually worships Satan. Because this is the whole um, ethos, this is the whole mindset of Anything that is anti-Christian, anti-Christian means anti-God, no subjection to God, no honoring God. you your own boss. You're your own man. You have power. God doesn't want to, you to serve him. Don't be tied down. You will be as God. And ultimately, this is, was the whole mindset of Satan, wasn't it? I, remember, read Isaiah 14. I shall ascend. I shall be as the most high. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. She was thinking, I can be like God. That's what Satan said to her. God's withholding me from reaching my full potential. Satan, so determined, and we're told the old serpent by his tail, he took a third part of heaven with him. They all rebelled against God. All the fallen angels rebelled against God. And man, it's true, the beast, man and his governments, is all exalted. Man is exalted. We have to say that today. Man is exalted in his own eyes. He says science is wonderful. Man is tremendous. He can go to the moon. He can do this. Man is saying, we'll even beat death. We'll beat cancer. You won't beat cancer. You won't beat death. Man's even saying, when we meet God, we'll beat God. Man won't beat God. That's the mindset of Satan, isn't it? Anything that is, let me say, this kind of worship is universal to all men. You notice verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is solemn. People don't realize this. Ultimately, they're going on in the mindset and the mantra of Satan. And they worship man. Verse 4. It's not just worshiping the dragon, but the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is like man? Remember them at the time of Babel? What was man doing? Let's build a great high place, higher and higher. Let's reach up to the heavens. Now men are talking about building homes and other planets and all sorts of crazy things. Verse 8, And they all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Who? Whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, this is universal. The man whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life worships himself and he worships Satan unwittingly because that's the whole mindset of Satan, isn't it? Satan also gives power to the beast. We read it here, verse 3 and 4. He gives power to the beast. How though? Well, we'll see. There's another beast. 
there's another beast that comes up, this one from the earth. And, uh, well, he, he, he doesn't look so dangerous, but he is. But let's just think, Satan is a fallen angel, friends. And uh, he uses means. And he works very subtly. Satan can't be seen here, but there are two beasts in this chapter, and they're very dangerous. We've got to remember, as we're learning here in this passage, all who do not worship Christ worship ultimately themselves, and they worship Satan. They're giving him honor. I want you to notice, verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, not might, shall, and they do, whose names are not written in the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now that's an encouragement to us as Christians. It was determined even before the foundation of the world that Christ should be slain, that he should be put to death. Some of us lived like people of the world, but Christ was slain for us even before the foundation of the world. God the Father has loved us and chose us as vessels of mercy. We must know this because you come to the verse 9 and to the verse 10. There will be slaying of God's people and even loss of life. But I want you to notice here, Satan gives power to the beast. But you know, it's not real power. It's a false power. It says, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? You notice in this chapter. Now just think for a moment. Some may think, well, this is strange. If I'm not a believer, do I belong to Satan? Well, actually, the Lord Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not scattereth. He says, you're an open league with the devil. Remember what he said to the Jews in John 8. He said, why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You're of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. These are ordinary Jews, and these are people of the world. It says here, they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Man is good. The Jews were proud in themselves, saying, we were never in bondage. But they were in bondage. They were proud as well. They were in bondage in Egypt. But ultimately, they were slaves to sin, serving themselves and divers lust. Pride's all behind it. And they sang here, who is like unto the beast? Who is like man? Who is able to make war with him? Well, if you look at verse 3, and I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. Now, some suggest that this could be one of the deaths of one of the, the great emperors, certainly at the time. We don't know. Was it Nero? Was it when Rome fell? We don't know. Some suggest it was after Nero's death, was there going to be another persecutor? Was there going to be another world empire? Some suggest that. And then Domitian arose, and then Diocletian, and then you've got other rulers, and then you've, you've had persecution down through the ages. Just one of the heads, wounded, but he seems to make a recovery. Some also suggest that it was Herod. Do you remember Herod in Acts chapter 12? How he was giving a great oration, and uh, he was in purple robes and giving a great speech. And it says in Acts twelve twenty one, And Herod, arrayed in a royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And then we read, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Some suggest maybe that was it, and people wondered. You know, when men gloried in themselves like Herod or Nero, it's hard to tell. But it seems he has taken a blow, but he revives again. And this is the world. The world 
seems to carry on. Well, but it will not. It will not overcome. Now, how long does this monster or this beast continue? Well, we're told here, verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Again, it's the entire gospel age. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. Now think of it. That's the world. Does the world not blaspheme? I I want you to think for a moment. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he is addressing the Jew. And he says how the Jew who claims to be a keeper of the law and who doesn't keep the law, blasphemes God. And people do this by their religions, false religions. They're actually blaspheming God because they're saying, you know, God actually, his standards are pretty low. You you can live how you want. The Jew breaking the law, he's saying to the world, well, you can live how you want. You can live like me. God's very low. His standards are low. Paul says in Romans 2.22, Thou sayest, A man should not commit adultery, thou dost commit adultery. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? And then he says, for the name of God is blasphemed. What is it to blaspheme? It's not just to take God's name in vain, and there are many ways we can blaspheme. You can take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to your tongue and use it as a swear word or byword. But actually, to blaspheme means to misrepresent God. And that is exactly what the Jews were doing. They were saying they were keepers of the law, but in fact, they were dishonoring God. And that, let me say, is what all false religions do. We are not just speaking here about man, but we are speaking about man-made religion. The Jew thought by the keeping of the law... He could make himself right with God, but he is a downright great sinner, isn't he? Could never make himself right with God. And man blasphemes God. And uh, all the rulers of this world, they in fact blaspheme God. Now thirdly, this beast was given to make war with the church and saints. Verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Now, when we think of the word overcome here, it's not overcome in the final sense. Okay, because we, you read the next chapter, you see the Lamb, chapter 14, upon the Mount Zion, upon the hill. And of course, the Lamb is all glorious. But it seems that the world overcomes, apparently, it's all apparent, overcomes the church. But not really. It doesn't really. But I want you to notice, verse 9 really is proof and assuring to the saints that God is going to have the final word. Notice, if any man have an ear, let him hear. Hear what? Well, here it is, verse 10. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. The world persecutes puts people into captivity, he shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Now we have these words. Here is the patience of the saints. In other words, this is what keeps the saints going. They know God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God will have the last word. Dr. John Gill said, Regarding verses 9 and 10, he that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. He says the design of this phrase is to show that there will be a just retaliation made to the anti-Christian. You see, he says this is the patience of the saints. This is where they get their patience from. God will avenge. Don't we know? As the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You see, the, the Christian is kept patient, isn't he? Through this truth. But if you're led captivity, guess what? Your persecutors one day will be cast into the lake of fire. You may be in prison, John, for a little while. But your persecutors, the Christ-haters, will be cast and be led captive. This is why we must be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Because the Lord knows, doesn't he? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Now we come to the second beast. And this is interesting. Because this beast is actually far more dangerous than the first beast. We might think this is, how can it be? Because actually this beast is the one that stirs up the first beast. And most of the commentators are agreed on this. This is religious persecution coming from the religious quarters. And believe me, if you study church history, you will see that most persecution that has come on the church has come from religious quarters. And they stir up the world. They stirred up Rome. And so on. And we think of this even concerning our Lord Jesus. What did the Jews do? They stirred up the Romans, didn't they? They would kill the Prince of Life. How much more us? But notice we come now to this second beast. And what is really subtle is is lamb-like. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. Very small horns, maybe like a lamb. It looked very soft, very gentle. The first beast, of course, we've said is man and man's governments. Daniel's explained that for us. In Daniel 7, verse 17, those beasts, leopard-like, bear-like, those are the kings, he says. But this, it's lamb-like, and it's very subtle. Again, let me say, we're dealing with symbolic language. We're not going to see some creature looking lamb-like. We're not looking for some animal. This is mere symbolism, to symbolize the persecution. Now, This first beast, really, he's working behind the scene, has the appearance of a lamb. Notice in verse 11 and verse 12, and really he's stirring up the beast that comes out of the sea. Notice in verse 11, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So his words are destructive. We could say. Now notice, and he exerciseth all power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. So this second beast causes the first beast to do what he does, and causes the first beast to be worshipped by the rest of the world. Of course, these are symbols of man. And this here is, let me submit to you, religious persecution coming from religious quarters of this world because of a lamb. We can think of a lamb. Even he looks harmless. Think of our Lord Jesus. He is described, is he not, as the lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world. So this beast gives the appearance of being gentle, as soft as a lamb, Harmless, but he is the one who gets the first beast to persecute the saints. Subtle, isn't it? And as he speaks, he speaks as a dragon. And I want you to notice something. We know it's 
coming from religious quarters, because when you come down to the verse 13, this beast, he doeth great wonders. In other words, he, he does something and it's wondered at. People marvel. It's, it's almost like magical things that he does. Smoke and mirrors. Deception. So that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles. Now they are perceived miracles. He's giving the idea that he's doing something wondrous. That he can do something tremendous. Of course, as we will see later when we get to Revelation 17, we get a view deeper into where really this religious persecution comes from. And we get a view of the harlot. As we will see, even our own confession in the Westminster Confession makes very clear is the Church of Rome and the Pope, the great Antichrist. We will see that later. But he, he deceives the nations and, and he gives power to the first beast. You see, he, he seems to give the appearance that he has power in heaven. He calls down fire from heaven. Now this reminds us, doesn't it, of Elijah. I suppose when Elijah called down fire from heaven. And he did. And of course you had the false prophet of Baal who were destroyed. And who, who deceived the people of Israel in that day. And they did. But for so long, we have to say, that even Rome has shrouded the word of God. For so long they held their mass and their services in Latin, forbidding the word of God to be translated into the common language of people. That was an anathema. And for so long, the world has been in darkness. And still, it, 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 I think it's, it's almost hard to believe that there could be another world power, socio-political power, so powerful, as the quarter of Rome, even is still today, the influence that it has in this world. And we'll see that when we get to Revelation 17, because the harlot is the professing church that is not the true church, is a false church, is a pseudo-church. And this beast here appears to be gentle as a lamb. We know we're told that even Satan can appear as an angel of light. Men can put on their white robes and look all so holy and lamb-like, but be devilish. Blood. So much blood is on the hands of Rome, my friends. We will read how she made the nations drunk with the blood of the saints. That's what we will read for centuries, for millennia. What does Rome do? Think of it, it is false religion because what Rome does is it denies and still does even to this day, it denies justification by faith in Jesus Christ that a man can be right with God by the grace of God. It must be Works as well. That's why they believe in the fact that you, even you can pay off for your sin in purgatory. You can't. You see, it's promoting man. And Rome is no different to the religions of this world. I mean, look at the World Council of Churches. It's a terrible organization. But look at ecumenism today. Look at all these, even Rome joining hand in hand with Islam. And these other religions, it's darkness. Well, verse 15. There are even, sorry, verse 13 and 14. This lamb seems to deceive the nations, even like Pharaoh's 
Remember Pharaoh's evil magicians, how they threw and they cast their rods and they became serpents. It's all apparent. And Satan can work wonders, signs even. God will allow that. Well, verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Think of it. What is even false religion doing? It's giving a power to man. It's saying, you look at all the religions, not just Rome, but you look at every religion, every ism. You can do something. Every religion is reaching up to God. (laughs) But my friends, Christianity, the true faith is God reaching down and saving helpless sinners. It humbles a man, doesn't it? Christ humbles because the true gospel tells us that only God can save. And remember, it's the image of the beast that is is being promoted here. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. The image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Man hates. Let me say anything that is opposed to man. I'm opposed to man. Man does promote himself, doesn't he? That's the world. But the church that cries, humble yourself before God, is the church that is persecuted. What does the church cry? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. That's what the church cries. But the beast hates that. And you see, that's what all religions do. Promote man. Man is great. Well, our confession, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, chapter 26, article 4 of the church. The Lord Jesus is the head of the church, in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Again, the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, article 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself in the church against Christ. You can study Vaticanus II. You can study the early church canons, the sixth session, Canon of Dort, considering justification. It says this, if anyone says that justifying, this is what the Church of Rome says, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is the confidence alone that justifies it, let him be anathema. Solemn. They deny that. But all the religions of this world do the same. So, these things are important, are they not? We see the world, we see religious persecution, and we will see when we get to Revelation 17, the harlot, who is behind all of this stirring the world. Of course, there are false religions, but ultimately there is the harlot leading in all of this who is the false bride. Now again, notice verse 16, we see the power and influence even in the world that this second beast has. And he, that is the lamb, causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. In other words, what is that mark? Well, it's the mark we're told here, of the beast. 
And what does that do when a man has this mark that no man might buy or sell, save or accept he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name? Now, many people, I suppose, are waiting for some fantastical answer from me as to what is the mark of the beast. Well, we've discovered what is the beast. What is the beast? It's man. It's the worship of man. And who is behind that? Satan is. He wants man to glorify himself and not God. And what is the mark of the beast? Well, notice the mark of the beast. Everyone that does not worship the lamb has the mark of the beast. And where is the mark? It's on his forehead and his hand. Now, again, the Jews understood this. You know, even today, many of the Jews have what we call phylacteries. And that certain parts of the law were written on little leather boxes and strapped. And the Jews, even in the Lord's day, had their phylacteries. He, he tells us about this. How they walked around in their robes and their garments. And how they had these phylacteries on their heads and on their arms. On their head. I must think the law. I must do the law. And remember, if you just turn back to Revelation 9, verse 4, the saints have a mark. Have they not? Are the saints, are the children of God not sealed? Revelation 9, 4, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, this is the angels, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So God's children have a seal, have a mark on their foreheads. What is that? They, they think about God. I trust nobody here has got some mark on you and you're not looking for some barcode. And if you're looking for some fantastical answer about a barcode or some chip implanted on you, I'm afraid I have to disappoint you tonight. Because that's not the meaning of the text. These that have the mark of the beast, it's on their forehead. What do they think? They think about serving man. They think about serving themselves. And do you know what? If that's not you, if you serve Christ, and many were suffering at this point, many were losing their their livelihoods because they, they loved Christ and because they wouldn't join with some um, religious sect or some group. And, of course, there were all kinds of guilds. If you, if you sold gold, you had to belong to the gold guild. Or if, if you made pottery, you belonged to the pottery guild. There were guilds in these days. And there were gods of those guilds. So if... You served and you, you worked maybe even in some area of life, farming or something. You gave to this God or that God, but you wouldn't be prosperous. If you had God's seal, if you served God, if you had his mark on you, then the world should know whether you have God's mark on you by the way that you think. The Jews of old had the phylacteries on the hand, because they were supposed to do the law of God and to think it. It was on the mind, on the head. God said in Exodus, he said, bind the word on your heads, on your foreheads, and on your arms, God said. And that's the sense. And what is the number here? The number is 666. And we're told, what is it? It's the number of man. Now, you think about it. We're dealing again here with symbols. In how many days did God make the earth? And what did he do on the sixth day? He made man. But the number six always comes short of seven. And what is seven? Complete perfection. Who was with Adam in a special way on the seventh day? God was. So we have here, we could say, man coming short. And we have the three numbers. Some suggest, and it's quite possible, man, 
that has this mark of the beast will not see God the Father. He will not see God the Son. He will not know God the Son. And he will not know God's Spirit. He will not know God, period. Man, in other words, will be incomplete. Anyone that has this mark, he does not have God. And whoever does not have God, his name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. He's lived for himself in this world. He's thought for himself. He never gave a thought for God. Six is the number of creation. God made the world in six literal days. And on the seventh, he rested. I'm sorry if you're looking for a barcode or some chip. And that's simply sensationalism today, isn't it? But what is being said here? If you have the mark of the beast, you have the mark of the world, the mindset, the thinking of the world, you'll not be with God. It's, we're told here, the number of man. Did you read that? It's the number of man. It's the number of a man, any man. It doesn't say the man of sin, but it's the number of man. But it's the number of man without God. You see, if you are living for this world, you're glorifying nobody else but yourself, and actually you're worshipping Satan, because that's exactly what he did. He said, I will ascend. I don't need God. I can exist on my own. I will ascend. I will be as the Most High. That is the mindset and the mantra of Satan. I believe, friends, it's usually the most simple explanation that's the right one in the Scripture. This is the book of revelation. This is not the book of concealing. And God is simply saying to us here that if a man lives for himself, He will terminate with self. He will not be complete. He will not rest. Seven, what does it stand for? Perfection. He will not be perfected. But he shall be without God. Forever and ever and ever. This is the patience of the saints, isn't it? The world will persecute you. Why? Because the world wants to promote self. Why do you think... You know, when you don't swear in the office, when you don't laugh at these rude jokes, people get angry. Because their pride is hurt, because they know it's wrong, and because even your quiet and godly living shows them up. Why do you think the world gets angry when it sees you content with Christ? Why do you think the world gets angry Because it's not content. Because it's looking in all the wrong places, isn't it? Why do you think the devil gets angry? And he sure does. Well, because he knows his end is near. That's why. But this is the patience of the saints, isn't it? And behind, let me say, the world and its systems, there is, as we will see in the subsequent chapters, the religions of this world, and especially the harlot, stir up great wrath in this world. Because the harlot will say, you know what? Oh, you you see these Christians. Yeah, they have many right and good. They can't deny that Christ came into this world. But you know what? Man's still good. Man needs to do something still, doesn't he? To make himself right with God. His good works. And you know what it says as well? You can can pay off for all the wrong things you've done. So just have sin in your life. Do what you want. 
You know, Italy, it's a very perverse country. I've been there. And you know, you wonder why the mafia survive. Because they can do all their crimes and then get in the confession box and see Mr. Priest and think it's right with God. That's man's religions. It's no different to the religions of this world. This is the patience of the saints. God, people will be persecuted. But God will have the final word, will he not? If we are the Lord's, we don't have the mark of the world on us. We don't think like the world. The hand pictures what we do. Not just what we think, but what we do. If we think a right, we'll do a right, won't we? May God help us to serve him. Amen.